says, teach me about hell. What do you have to say about hell? You monks always talk about heaven and hell. Teach me about heaven and hell. And the monk opens his eyes from his meditation, looks up with a look of disgust in his face, looks at the samurai and says, disgusting, filthy, scruffy wretch, you're ashamed to the samurai class. I don't even want to give you the time of day to answer your pathetic question. And the samurai, you don't talk to samurais like that, you know, brandishes his sword and says, Monk and goes on a long rant and he, and he says, you know, I could take your head off in one move. And he's furious. Did I? Yeah. I did. I reversed it. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And the, and the monk says, just as the, the, the samurai is about to strike, he's so, he's so f- furious about this, this, this impotence and this, this, this insolence, I say. And the monk says, that's hell, right there. That mind state you're in. Anger, fury, rage. Samurai kind of goes, wow. He's right. Amazing. He was prepared to risk his own life to, to point out that teaching, that experience of hell. And all of a sudden, his fury drops, his sword drops, and he feels suddenly great admiration and respect and appreciation for this courageous monk. Feeling that warm sense of gratitude, the monk says, and that's heaven. tells a story from T.S. Bennett of um, her struggles in childhood with her mother and a difficult relationship and running away from home several times and uh, one time she gets caught by the police, gets taken back home and just as she was uh, being let back into her house she rather rashly asks her mother who she had a very difficult relationship with, she said do you love me? Mom, and how could anybody ever love you? Fifty years to to work through the negative, painful impact of those words. You have been spoken to in a way that's been harsh, cruel, belittling, shaming, and it sometimes takes years, even decades, to work through the pain of words. <coughs> Powerful. Anybody marching this weekend? Anybody out there? Marching. According to some sources. <laughs> According to the sources I read, which is the New York Times, which I generally think is a pretty reputable news source. I think it was in the Times I read there was they, they, there was some total count of 2.9 million people were marching on Saturday in protest of against immigration, Trump, racism. Most, the most that People have ever marched in one day, so so the records show. But some would say there wasn't that many people marching, <coughs> right? Here we are living in a in a time where truth is really arbitrary and somewhat up for grabs. It would seem. There was interesting debate about the size of the attendance of, at the inauguration. Yeah. Right? So 
What I was reading was how one of the ways they track the numbers of inaugurations is they track the the, the Washington D.C. transit system as a way of doing a rough calculation of the size of the crowd, and the numbers were significantly higher for Obama's 2008 inauguration. Understandably, it was a, such a radical event. This country elected a black man in 2012. Also, high numbers, and 2016, much lower numbers. But not according to some. According to Kellyanne Conway and others, using alternative facts <laughs> that were claiming this inauguration had the most people ever, okay? which was quite questionable. So we ask, what is wise speech in this time? What is truthful speech? What is truth? What are facts if we can suddenly have alternative facts? <clears throat> We're living in this age, particularly because the the impact of social media, you know, and the 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 this massive spread of fake news, fake stories. And um, we may be partly responsible for spreading those. I know I certainly was. You know, I read something, I'm shocked, and I feel so strongly about it, I share it before I've done a good old fact check. And then someone will, <laughs> remind, will tell me, you should probably do a little fact check before you, you know, post that. significantly change the course of election, perhaps, the amount of lies and fake news. It's kind of unprecedented in election here, and I think around elsewhere, but certainly here. At least on that scale. And there's the conversations that we have. There's the, so the, the, there's the media, the social media, and then there's the conversations that we have with each other, with friends and strangers. And in my experience, there's a lot of um, a lot of speech going on right now that that is. Um, from a Dharma point of view, uh, questionable. I can't think of a better word. There's not quite the right word I'm looking for, but uh, worthy of reflection about. You know, when we're distressed and triggered and activated, we speak from that place. And usually, when we're triggered, and we, what comes out of our mouth is not necessarily the clearest, the wisest, the most compassionate, or necessarily the most honest. So, and we need to, I think, take responsibility for both our own practice and what we say and how we contribute to the common discourse. Adding to truthfulness, Harmony. The question that I reflect on in these conversations that I can get caught up in and my friends and colleagues and people I see around getting caught up in is does the, this kind of conversation that's being often driven by fear and anger and hatred lead to clarity and does it lead to constructive action? or more fear and more anxiety. I think there's a, I, I see a common habit of sharing distress about something, about the political situation, that creates more distress, and more anxiety, and more fear, and more paralysis, and more hopelessness, and more helplessness. Right? Not so constructive. Right? I'm not saying we don't need to talk about these issues and uh, confront uh, racism or discrimination or injustice. 
but to be mindful of how we whip ourselves and others up into a frenzy that's often driven by catastrophizing thoughts, fear-based thinking, that's not necessarily about what's actually happening. And I realize this, is a, this could be a contentious view and, and there may be different points of view in the room about this. But I want to talk about, um, well, before I go there, I, I, just, I do have to share some um, some uh, my favorite uh, banners that I saw on the marches this weekend. Some through, not through being in them personally, but social media. So one was... Um, a take on the, the TV series Orange is the New Black, Orange is the New Fascism. There is so much wrong, there is so much wrong it cannot fit on this sign. These, these are billboards people were carrying. <laughs> Super callous, fascist, racist, extra braggadocious. <laughs> Another one. Sorry world, we'll fix this. words, there will be hell to pay, to pay, hell to pay. <laughs> Want a leader, not a creepy tweeter. Hardly anyone marched, failure, sad. Our <laughs> checkers of the world unite. I know signs. I made the best signs. They're great. Everyone agrees. (laughs) Vaginas brought you into the world. Vaginas will vote you out. (laughs) I wish my uterus shot bullets so the government wouldn't regulate it. That's pretty good too. The last one, we shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Oh, I'm mindful as I'm giving a talk on wise speech to be mindful of wise speech. But anyhow, I think they were just very amusing and it's good to laugh and um, something about humor that helps hold difficulty sometimes and also just to sometimes humor just like poetry can can actually nail something quite accurately so in the context of the path and, and these teachings you know the the the, the trajectory of the path, waking up from suffering to releasing and understanding our reactivity and habits and patterns that cause pain for ourselves and others, right? That's why, that's the, that's the context of the practice and the context of looking at our speech and conversation in that context. What is leading to well-being and peace and happiness and justice and what is leading to, to sorrow and fear and, and delusion? So as you probably know that the the teachings of wise speech were an important part of the Buddha's teaching. He talked quite a bit about speech. It's a significant part of the Eightfold Path. And one way you could summarize what he said about speech was, if you don't have anything, use- if you don't have anything useful to say, then keep quiet. If you don't have anything useful to say, then keep quiet. whole world a lot quieter, wouldn't it? <laughs> As all that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, suffering follow, follows you like the, art, the cart follows the ox. Speak or act with a calm, bright heart, then happiness follows you like a shadow or a friend. Notice from where we are speaking from to notice the intention, to notice the place, to notice the aspiration of why we say what we say when we say it.
So a mindful life is the understanding that we're learning to wake up wherever we are. There's nothing outside of the context of our practice of mindfulness. That does involve how we talk, who we talk to, how we converse, what we say, how we say it, when we say it. And in particular, it applies, you know, there wasn't much social media at the time of the Buddha in 2,600 years ago. There's a whole new realm of mindfulness required around how we tweet and how we email and what we post on Facebook and all the other channels that you choose to post on Snapchat or, you know, whatever it is. How are we using that media? Are we using it accurately? Or are we um, also acting out in ways that are not so useful? So, you know, we live in this culture that, um, you know, especially in the consumer culture, doesn't mind lying about stuff. We don't have such great role models. Back at some of the history of advertising, right, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, of how good for you smoking was. Many things that have been good for us that we now know are not so good for us. Toxic, poisonous. How politicians can bend the truth. I I sort of came of age politically with Margaret Thatcher, who was very skillful at bending the truth to... uh, So different than today encouraging working-class people and trade union members to vote against their own interests. She was a huge economic divide and rift in the country, similar to what's happening here. So I'm just going to say a few things about, just to remind us about wise speech and then and then sort of come back to where we are now politically and, and socially. So, you know, basically why speech is speaking what's true. But there's, as we know, there's a lot of shades of truth. I, my uh, accountant emailed me today about the upcoming tax season. And I thought, oh, that's interesting coming as I'm preparing my talk on truthful speech, right? which also involves how we communicate to our CPAs and to the IRS. Lies, exaggerate, omit. There's lots of ways that we can shade the truth. The way we embellish stories. The way that we talk about ourselves in a way that is aggrandizing, or favorable, you know, the way that we craft a story to our own mind and then to to people we're talking to. Mm -hmm. Just think, just look at the the thoughts that are going on in your head. How truthful are they? The stories that you're telling yourself. A lot of the stories we tell ourselves are actually not true. Like I'm a separate individual. Mm -hmm. My perceptions of reality, how it is, maybe good chance it's not how it is. Not lies, but they're not necessarily so aligned with the truth. Judge that, but just to be curious, what are the things I'm saying inwardly and outwardly? How truthful are they? What happens when I shade the truth to myself or to others? Mark Twain who said, The reason I tell the truth is I don't have to remember what I said. You tell a lie, you've got to you've got to keep you know it's, it gets complicated. You need lie, and you've got to sort of craft another lie, and then you know it's, and then you've got to remember who you said what to what, and you know it, it's just agitating to the mind. 
One of the reasons the Buddha talked about wise speech was that when we're, when we're truthful, we have a settled conscience. Settled conscience, settled heart, settled mind, settled meditation. Right? When we're not truthful, it reverberates. My experience, if we're you know, really committed to waking up on the path, that lack of truthfulness will come back very quickly and bite you in the butt. Reality has a way of making us align with what's true. And then to think about what your intention is for how you speak, what you, what you say, how you say it, what you post, what you blog about, what you tweet about. And the speech, is it? Is it curious about that. So my, my favorite list that the Buddha talked about for why speech is a very easy list to remember and it's very pragmatic. He says, think about, when you're thinking about engaging about something to say, is it the right time, the right place, the right person, the right subject? Is it the right time for this conversation? Back home and you've got this thing you want to talk to your spouse and it's midnight and you're tired and you're hungry and you've had a big day and you know, it's not the best time to do a midnight conversation. It doesn't go so well in my experience. Or if, you know, if I'm hungry and I try to have a conversation, I'm low blood sugar and I can't think straight. It's not going to go well. Simple, right time, right place. I'm driving. <laughs> so this yesterday, I'm driving with my partner to uh, uh, do some uh, uh, furniture shopping in the East Bay. And um, and so I'm just thinking about you know furniture, kitchen, you know, da, da, da. and um, and suddenly my partner asks asking me a lot of very deep relationship questions. <laughs> and I'm driving on the Richmond Bridge. Oh, honey, I'm trying to drive here. And she said, no, it's good, I got you captive. <laughs> but I don't know if this is the right place <laughs> for these deep, reflective questions about our relationship. Yeah, I did my best. <laughs> I couldn't escape that one. You know, or if you're having an intense political debate, sometimes you need to be mindful, is this a safe place to be having this debate? Sometimes you're having a debate with a friend or a partner where there's a possibility of escalation and violence, and it's not safe to do that in private. Then I, and I, I'm, in, I'm encouraged many people to have convers- difficult conversations in public places for safety reasons. Right time, right place, right person. Sometimes we share things because we, we're, we're venting, we're triggered, we need to unload, we're dumping, and, and we just grab whoever's around and it's not necessarily the appropriate person. Maybe it's our 12-year-old son, not the appropriate person to be venting something necessarily that might be very difficult for them to hold, or a six-year-old, or, you know, I'm thinking children particularly who are vulnerable, more vulnerable don't have the same capacity as we might. Mm-hmm. A lot of stories of people venting, uh, you know, on Facebook and whatnot, uh, and getting fired, because you know, they're venting about their employer. My nephew was venting about some fast food place he was, he was in, and his employee read it, and next day he was out. Mm-hmm. Right. So in the right venue. And then right subject. Is this the appropriate subject for this person at this time and this place? The way I think about this, the right subject is, do I know enough about this subject to actually have a conversation. And there's a lot, especially when we get in the realm of talking politically, right? 
we're often spouting a lot of views and opinions that we don't necessarily, you know, if someone did a serious fact check on our conversation, <laughs> we might come up a little short. Not to say we can't have discussions, but um, how familiar and how clear are we about the content of our conversation? That's one facet of, of, of wise speech. And then there's other, the ways that we talk. You know, the Buddha talked about refraining from harsh speech. And I think the main way that we, we engage in harsh speech is with our critic, with our inner critic. And I've been talking a lot about the inner critic in, in the last few months. Um, and you know, we're generally not that harsh to others. Maybe sometimes those who are close to us, we can be. We might be harsh to those driving around us and they can't hear us. We're going to be very mean and harsh, but that's okay. It's sort of safe, sort of. Um, but we're very harsh with ourselves, often. Critical, judgmental, demeaning, belittling. Very powerful, potent impact on our well-being, that sense of judgment. See that, can we let it go? Can we be softer? Can we be kinder? Can we be more forgiving? Buddha talked about, this is, I think, more particularly in a, in a retreat or a monastic context, context, but I think it also has some relevance for us, refraining from frivolous speech and gossip. Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, said he, he practiced refraining from not talking about anybody who wasn't present for a month. And he said about 90% of his conversation disappeared. <laughs> and most of the time we're talking about other people who aren't present. And we have a jolly old time about it. You know. And it's not to say we shouldn't, and there's a place for, you know, we need to process, we're talking about our relationships, we're trying to understand things with our children or our employees, or, you know, there's a, we need to talk, and we need to talk about the political uh, situation and whatnot. But to notice when that goes from conversation to talking, saying things in a way that you wouldn't say if they were present in the room. Or saying things in a way that when it gets back to them, it's really painful. Because we've probably all been on the receiving end of that. You hear some talk in the bushes at work or in some group you're in. And it's very painful to to, to know that you're being talked about. And it's usually not so flattering. It's usually in in the more difficult. And there's the, the, the place of how do we talk to people who don't share our same political views or our same views, period. But I think particularly politically, how do we speak across the political divide? Right? We generally live in very siloed lives. We live in bubbles, right? We're in a spirit rock bubble, a marine bubble, a Bay Area bubble, a liberal bubble, or whatever bubble we're in, we're generally in bubbles, so many of us were so shocked by the result of the election partly because of the bubble that we're in. Not just because of that. It's also just shocking. But, you know, we're in, it's because we're not, you know, living, you know, in a, in a town that used to have a, you know, steel industry or coal mining industry or, you know, where I grew up in a shipbuilding industry, right? So I was having a conversation with an old friend of mine um, and, and I sort of made an assumption that we shared, you know, that the, the people I know have some consensus about the reality of climate change and climate science and the impact of human uh, industry uh, on carbon emissions and how that's accelerating climate change to a you know, terrifying degree made the assumption that my friend shared that view and he didn't. And I was shocked and I was incredulous and I got angry and I got contracted and I got judgmental and shut down and I wasn't very proud of myself. <laughs> I, I was sort of kind of stunned 
and I care so much about the earth and what's happening to it, and I couldn't believe that someone I knew who I regard as intelligent and well-informed was questioning the, you know, the probably tens of thousands of peer-reviewed research papers looking at the relationship between carbon emissions and climate change. And positing the, the still ongoing debate that's funded mostly by the fossil fuel industry that's positing a different view. So the reason I'm sharing that story is I was humbled by my reactivity, which of course we are all the time. It's part of being human. Until you're awake, we get humbled by our reactivity, right? Anybody got reactivity to someone who shares a political view? Like when you went home for the holidays, right? Don't talk about politics at Thanksgiving or Christmas, right? Don't talk, you know, of course, you, you, know, you go back to your families and often they have very different political views, right? Heated, gets polarized, gets aggressive, People storm off, you know, the goodwill leaves, right? It's, it's, it can be very contentious. Right? How, do we, how do we bring up practice to talk to people who say, you know, I love uh, this president, I love the, diff- I, I'm, I'm a member of the NRA, or I'm a member of whatever political party you don't like. How do we talk to that person? How do we engage in a way that's constructive, that's not polarizing, that's not otherizing, that's not demonizing? Not easy. This, uh, when I was running one of my teacher trainings, when my and somebody spoke up and said, it's very hard for me to be open and welcoming in a class to someone who thinks my sexual preference is an aberration. Aberration is um, perverted. Racist. Very hard. Things of mindfulness and compassion and wise speech asking us to look how does our practice relate in this very real way in these contentious times right? this is not new it's just becoming a little more escalated so I want to share a story from the from the texts from from the Buddha so, and I think I'll just read it. So, um, you may or may not know, but the, the Buddha was living in a very contentious, politically active, unstable, feudal um, time in a similar way to medieval Europe was always at war with itself. Lots of minor kingdoms, overthrowing each other. It was very unstable, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of instability. And the Buddha had to navigate this. He'd started this monastic order, was reliant on the, the goodwill of the kings and also the, the funding from the noble folks and the, the aristocracy. And so had to, had to maneuver very diplomatically you know, sometimes talking to a neighboring king who wanted to destroy the kingdom that he was in or destroy his own kingdom where he grew up and having to navigate so he would um, not uh, reap the wrath from one of these kings. So uh, at a certain point in time, King Ajatasattu, who um, had had many dialogues with the the Buddha, who was a very, very aggressive uh, king, who had an insatiable desire to conquer other kingdoms, once having decided to conquer the kingdom of the Vajians, sent his chief minister Vasakara to the, to the Buddha to find out the Buddha's views about his decision to con- conquer the Vajians. The Jatasattu wanted to know whether he would gain victory, and the, the, the Buddha was known for his um, 
not exactly omniscience, but for his clarity around these issues and ability to sense uh, the outcome of things. And in response, the Buddha turned to his chief attendant, Ananda, with praise of the Vajians and the noble democratic confederacy. So the Buddha had had many dialogues also with the Vajians about how to conduct themselves in harmony. In fact, there's a, I'll, I'll read the list of things that he instructed them to develop as a healthy society. And the Buddha further inquired from, from Ananda about whether the Vajians are strictly following the conditions of Dharma, not leading to decline as taught to the Vajians by the Buddha, to which the Venerable Ananda said yes. Then the Buddha turned to Ananda and declared thus, as long as they would continue on these lines taught them by the Buddha earlier at Vasali, they cannot be feeded and not, and not expected to decline but to prosper. The shrewd minister who was sent by King Ajatasattu drew his own conclusion that the lichavis of the Vajian state could not be conquered in battle at that moment, but if their unity and alliance was broken, they could be defeated, and he ran back to the king with his news. In fact, Ajatasattu later defeated the Vajians not three years after the Buddha's death purely by shrewdly creating disunity amongst the rulers of the Vajians. So some of the rules that the or the principles that the Buddha taught um, uh, the Vajians were having meetings and assemblies frequently, coming together in harmony, uh, conducting their affairs in harmony, and dispersing in harmony, respecting elders, respecting women, uh, respecting religious sites, etc. So the point of that story is: here's the Buddha faced with a very difficult situation where a king is saying, shall I attack this neighboring kingdom? And the consequences of what the Buddha says may have serious implications for how that king views the Buddha and his monastic order. And, um, and so, the, so the Buddha replies indirectly and very diplomatically, pointing to the, the, the upholding of Dharma principles as a way to say to the, this, this aggressive king, you know, when you attack people who live with principles, that will, end, that will end in your ruin. So, what I like about that story is it shows that um, we have to be diplomatic. We have to be subtle. Another story that I, I like very much, the Buddha in a similar situation. Um, it may have been the same king, I don't remember, um, who uh, was going to attack the Buddha's own uh, clan, his own kingdom, the Shakyans. And the Buddha heard about this and sat in meditation on the road that that king and his army had to walk along to get to the kingdom of his people, the Shakyans. Sitting under a dead old tree in the hot sun. And the king came up with his army and they said to the Buddha, who, and they'd had a relationship, they'd had dialogue over the years. Why are you sitting under the hot sun under a dead old tree. Why don't you sit in the shade in the forest? And the Buddha said something like, um, goodness of, the, of my people is all the shade I need. That protects my Poetic. And with that response, uh, the king turned back and decided not to proceed. He was convinced by the Buddha not to uh, go to war and bring bloodshed. And so, and that brings me to what I want to end with, which is um, now that dimension of why speech is how we speak uh, in difficult times, how we speak to injustice. Why speech does not just mean restraint does not just mean refraining from, it also means at times speaking up, speaking the truth, 
speaking to power, speaking to injustice, confronting untruthfulness, confronting lies, confronting ignorance, confronting delusion. Throughout history, there have been people who've embodied this truth, often gone to the, the, been put to death for it. Like An Sang Su Chi, these, these were people, beacons of light for oppressed peoples, in this case, Burma. Remember being with my first Vipassana teacher, Christopher Titmus, who used to teach here some years ago. And uh, we were in Bodh Gaya many years ago, where the place where the Buddha attained awakening. And um, at the time, this was in the early 90s, um, the, the place where the, the, the Buddha got enlightened is... Um, celebrated by a huge stupa, stone structure, and the tree, which is supposed to be the descendant of um, the original tree that he attained awakening under. It's a beautiful old um, people tree, and, um, and people come and pay homage and meditate, and it's a very beautiful, very sacred place for Buddhists all over the world. And the, this particular time, um, the Sri Lankan government, as a sign of respect to the tree, wanted to build this uh, sort of protective, ornate, gilded fence. Um, kind of looked, sadly, a bit like a cage. And they, they wanted to build it of solid gold, all this gold plate. It was going to cost a million dollars, which in Bihar, which is the state in which this temple is in is the poorest state in India which would probably house and clothe and feed untold amount of people but anyhow they chose to spend a million dollars on this very ornate gold fence Um, and sadly because it's such a poor part of the world and there's a lot of um, uh, bandits and it's it's pretty lawless that they had to uh, have an armed guard 24 hours a day stand by the fence so it wouldn't be stolen by the Dakots. So there's this really weird juxtaposition of you know, the Buddha and simplicity and the tree and then this very fancy gold fence and then an armed soldier in the temple grounds having to protect the fence that was supposed to be about liberation. And, you know. and yeah, it was all very kind of, you know, are and, and, and silly and, and, um, and yeah, so there's this big and there was a lot of protest around it because it, for many it was offensive to have you know one why would you want to have this beautiful symbol of freedom encased and, you know, and anyhow so a lot of people were unhappy including my teacher Christopher and so when the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka came for a big elaborate ornate ceremony and Lots of pomp and circumstance and um, procession and um, a lot of soldiers and armed guards because there's a lot of um, threat of bombings at the time. And um, we were, Christopher was teaching in the middle of a retreat and he was very outspoken about, about this thing, about this... And so he was able to somehow manage to weave his way through all the, the soldiers and the guards and, and goes right up to the prime minister and, and confronts him about why he's doing this. And, and wouldn't he be better spending that money on building hospitals and schools rather than the golden, you know. And I was always struck by that, that he wasn't just going to sit and meditate on it. And, and, and wish compassion for the fence to go away, or he actually, you know, was was really, you know, and he, you know, he got yanked out away by the guards and you know taken away. Um, but there was something very beautiful about that courageousness to speak to power and to.
So lastly, what I want to share is um, something I came across um, in an interview recently with Krista Tippett. Anybody familiar with Krista Tippett? She has this wonderful podcast called On Being. And it's the very in-depth interviews with spiritual teachers and thinkers and writers. Um, and I imagine a mindfulness practitioner of sorts because that's certainly very evident in her in the way that she uh, conducts her interviews. But what I was struck by that's not new to politics but seems even more so now than ever is, but also true with mindful communication in general is the main thing that's lacking is our capacity to listen. Right? We're all good talkers. right? None of us lacks the ability to talk. But we're not so good at listening. Right? And in key part of, of mindful speech and mindful communication is listening. Right? And mindfulness practice gives us hopefully the edge on how to do that because mindfulness practice is a listening practice. It's a deep listening to ourselves, to our experience, to reality, to the truth. So um, she's an interview, being interviewed by Tammy Simon who's also another great interviewer, founder of Sounds True. And um, Tammy Simon's asking her about listening, exactly the question, and Krista says, well, I think that good listening starts even before words begin to be spoken, even before we speak the question. So as, as I read this, which is quite long, I want you to think about how you listen and how you could weave some element of this into how you listen. I think that good listening starts even before words begin to be spoken, even before we speak the question. It starts with the invitation we create, the way we create the invitation, the space we create. If it's not trustworthy, if people think they've been brought in to be set up, if people feel like they're on the defensive or they have to explain themselves, then no matter how good my questions are, I haven't established a space in which I can be a good listener or really draw them out in a meaningful way. So it starts with the invitation. It starts with the setting. Then I am aware that I'm not just there listening with, engaging with my words, with my questions, but I'm present with myself as a human being, as a complicated human being. Just an awareness of that, an attention to that, a mindfulness about that, it still means I'm in there with all of my whatever preconceived notions I might have unconsciously, however much think I may be in control of them. But as you know, mindfulness doesn't necessarily raise those things, but it allows us to allows us to be. We put them in their proper place or we're aware that they're in the room. So that's one thing. I'm trying to be there as a feel, full human being and I'm trying to be there with my curiosity. If we can create spaces, trustworthy spaces and trustworthy encounters, where that is really what we are telegraphing, not just in the words we speak and the questions we formulate, but how we are present, I think we will surprise each other more than we think is possible. I don't know about you, but I thought that was very profound. How to listen, right? How to communicate begins with this space that we create and letting go of the preconceptions being aware of all the stuff we carry in us and actually at the same time holding this pregnant space that allows this experience to be and this person to be and this dialogue to be. So the next time you're, you're, um, I don't know, home with the family or at the office and people have different political, social views to you, what would it be like to hold that kind of space? Not to be entrenched in I'm right, you're wrong, I'm better, you're not, but to actually have a space of listening. Just to close, when considering wise speech, I think of it as a contactfulness, contactfulness with presence contactfulness with oneself, with one's body, embodied communication. It's in contactfulness with our intention, our aspiration, our motivation for speaking. It's contactfulness with the other, not creating a sense of divide. 
and a contactfulness with the truth. No wonder communication is challenging because it's so multifaceted. That's what I wanted to share tonight. I'm open to see if there's any questions or comments or observations. We have a microphone at the back there. If there's not a show of hands, and I'm happy to uh, just wrap up. But we have a couple of minutes. Anything anybody would like to share? Yes, right there. You got the mic. Okay. Um, I had... Um, I was away at Christmas uh, visiting my sister um, in uh, a nice place, Hawaii. And one morning, I I know she's a born-again Christian and evangelical. And uh, so I assiduously tried to avoid anything political. And she misquoted, I guess you would say it was an alternative truth, And the moment was there where it would have been hard to hold that space because it seemed that the more you repeat a lie, the more it becomes the truth for many people. So how would you respond to that? Uh, You, I mean, how would you or how would would other people respond to that? Uh, To to an alternative truth? Which you knew to be a lie. <laughs> which you, you knew, but she didn't. Well, she was quoting... Uh, she said, her statement was uh, that uh, when President Bill Clinton won, uh, that uh, he was elected by the uh, Electoral College and that he did not win the popular vote. And I was going to try and let it go, and I just couldn't. <laughs> How would you have responded to try and hold that space open? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't claim to have an answer. You know, um, you know every situation is different, and you know when we choose our battles, you know, right time, right place, right person, right subject, right context, and there's a lot of different things. You've got a history of relationship, you've got the you know the family situation you've got the impact of that conversation and um, you know and and you know what the challenge with 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 this issue around wise speech is that we immediately come ac- come up against the intense attachment to views right the reason why we get into such conflict around speech is because we're so attached to our views. Right? Whether it's her view around Clinton or, you know, and, you know, right? it's one of the strongest attachments we have as human beings. And so the reason it's so inflammatory is because whatever side of the spectrum we're on, there's a lot of, there's usually, I'm not saying you are, but there's often a lot of attachment. Right? So it's entrenched. So, um, um, and, and, you know, and I find that helpful to know that going in. You know, it's like, okay, so. I know this person is very set in this particular way, so what's the most skillful thing to do? You know, am I trying to convert them? Am I trying to prove to them that they're wrong, which generally doesn't go down so well? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really like a case-by-case. Case. Um, you know, I remember going home not so long ago, and I presented something, some some findings about, some neuroscience findings about um, somebody close to me said, well, that's just all a load of nonsense. (laughs) And I was like, wow, that's a strong view (laughs) about, you know, a lot of peer-reviewed scientific study. I'm just not going to go there. (laughs) I'm just going to leave that one alone because... The intensity of the resistance to taking that in was like, hmm, it's like not my battle to pick, you know. And so we have to be, you know, have to be reflective on, you know, what what's the consequence for going there, you know? 
And sometimes we have no choice because we feel so strongly that no matter what the consequences, we're going to speak to the truth. And if that's true, that's true. You know, that's one way, and that's one way we go sometimes. You know, we know there'll be fallout, but we see we feel so vehemently. Like if someone says something racist, I'm going to say something because I don't care how conflictual it's going to be. It needs to be challenged. So other things like that thing, like what we're talking about, neuroscience of the brain. I don't care that much. I don't care if they have a different view. It's not a big deal. I'd rather enjoy being together because I don't visit with them very often. And I just, okay, we're just not going to go have a discussion in that domain. You know, so we, we have to choose, you know. And, um, you know, in that moment, for me, what was the most appropriate response was compassion. Because I saw that the, the vehemence behind that triggered reaction was fear. I was like, okay, well, in that mind state, and I don't need to push it or aggravate it. I'm just going to let it go. You know, I'm not saying that that's what you should do or shouldn't do, but that's what I, you know, and I think, you know, I love this word skillful and unskillful. Like, what's the most skillful thing? What's the wise thing, right? Not the right thing or what I should do, but just, you know, given the context, this person, this place, this time, our relationship, you know, what the, when's the time to confront and challenge? When's the time to let it go? Um, messy. There's no one way, you know. One time you visit and you might radically challenge that. Next time you go, you know, I did that last time. It was horrible. Didn't get us anywhere. Because we're not going to change that person's point of view. I mean, maybe if you present the data. But, you know, what I, what I, there's interesting data I heard recently, which is the more that we tell the story about a fact, of course, the more we believe it, but the more that we hear a contrary view, the more strongly we hold to it, even if we know it's not true. Because we're human, <laughs> and we do things that aren't necessarily so wise, you know. So, question, then we'll wrap up. Or comment, or observation, or yes. Hi. You started um, your talk with an example of someone who it took 50 years, you said, to get over abusive speech. What happened in those 50 years? Can you share the hope? Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know much about the story other than the framework, but... Um I don't think that's necessarily a roadmap. It's just you know one person's experience and maybe a turn of phrase, um, you know. But what she's pointing to is that it, you know, especially when we're young and impressionable, those words that can be said can be very powerful. And um, it may be in fifty years because they chose not to work on it for forty-five years. Right? That's usually what happens. And some people go, "Oh God, I guess I need to really face this." Right? The more we face it, the quickly it moves. The quicker it moves through, and the less it has impact. So I'd say the hope is that when we turn to face these painful, difficult things that have happened to us, it allows you know we feel, we grieve, etc., and it allows it to move through. Much quicker. So that's Those kind of things are said to us, it just gets buried for decades. And at some point, for some reason, it starts to surface. All right, everybody, thank you so much. Nice to be with you. Thank you, online folks, and uh, blessings. Be well. Maybe see some of you on Sunday. If not, somewhere here again. Thanks.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.